Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Oh, Lena, I'm so excited. Tell us, uh, who, tell everybody who we've got with us today. I know you're excited, as am I excited, and everyone's going to be excited because today we have with us Nigel Hetherington, who's an archaeologist, author, and co-founder of Past Preservers. He also specializes in archaeological site management, and we are here to talk about ancient Egypt and the Valley of the Kings. And I can hear our listeners getting all excited because we all love a bit of ancient Egypt. Welcome, Nigel. Oh, thank you very much. Good morning to everybody. Oh, how are you doing in lockdown? Where are you? Uh, and what, what's your biggest challenge so far on lockdown? Well, actually, because I normally, you know, I work uh, on my own mainly and my team are spread out across the world anyway. I work from my computer. It's not really much of a change day to day, but I've decided to hide up in the Lake District, uh, up in the north of England, uh, because at least that way I can get out and stretch my legs and see some beautiful uh, scenery on my daily permitted walk um so yeah i'm hiding away i've ordered a shed and i'm going to turn it into my office <laughs> oh i'm so jealous i miss wide open spaces so much yeah, and you're stuck um, in london aren't you yeah my wide open space is the car park for the flats i'm oh. so sick of walking up and down it it's untold but yeah uh let's talk about ancient egypt uh alina why don't you start us off today so obviously my question is, what actually got you interested in ancient Egypt? Well, as a child, I was interested in history I'm a, and, and geography, particularly. I love geography at school. Um, and I had a book um, on the pyramid and the Sphinx that an old auntie gave me a wonderful Regis Digest thing, you know, this massive great tomb of a book. And I treasured that. But because I was actually quite good at maths and numbers at school, that was my... The, my push they uh, all the teachers and everything said oh this is what you've got to do this is what you're going to get a job in you're not going to get a job in archaeology and history so i became an accountant um Ooh, oh that's no fun uh, yeah it was actually the the good thing i always said about my 15 years living and working in, in, in london as an accountant was the fact that i worked for interesting companies i think if you're going to do a boring job work at least at an interesting company so i worked by Avid, the software editing people for the film and TV industry. Um, I worked at Time Out um, magazine. I worked at Harrods, which was oh, a wow. bizarre place to work. But <laughs> at least they were interesting. You know, so after 15 years of that, um, I managed to actually get a trip organized to Egypt. Um, and I went and I was meant to go with a friend. And I remember the friend dropping out at the last minute and I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to go. And 
it basically completely changed my life. I fell, I'm so crazy about Egypt, fell in love with it, everything about it, wanted to know everything and started reading all my old books. Um, then when I got back to England, I actually signed up for a, a course at Urbeck at the, um, the sort of UCL night school as I want. And um, it was fantastic. I did the history, the basic introduction or something to Egyptian history um, over a course of a year. And I had a wonderful professor, um, Susanna Boitus, and she was fantastic, really supportive, and pushed me to do the essays and things like that. So getting back into, you know, um, academia and writing things and researching things and stuff like that. And I found it really interesting. And I thought that would be it, really. I thought that was going to be, you know, just it was just going to be a hobby. Um, and then I got made redundant in 2000. And um, also a long-term relationship came to an end. Uh, my mother uh, died that year. It's like all these things came together. And I thought, oh, you know, I've got to do something different with the next 15 years, right? So um, I, with her help, with my professor's help, I applied to UCL to go back to study uh, Egyptian archaeology or Egyptology. And I must say the Egyptology people were not that friendly um, at the history department and basically didn't give me a lot of encouragement. But uh, I went next door to UCL, the Institute of Archaeology, and they were amazing. And that was the start of six years there. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, so give us an overview um, of the Theban Mappen project and the Valley of the Kings. Uh, for those, just give us a brief outline of the Valley of the Kings as well for people who aren't so afraid with um, ancient Egypt. Where is it? What time period does it span? And what have you been doing there? Well, I was very lucky that once I started at UCL, um, when I, I completed my undergraduate in uh, Egyptian archaeology, and then I went on to do a master's course in cultural heritage studies. And part of that is site management, conservation, looking at how, you know, we conserve these sites with the enormous pressures that are on them from tourism and also from archaeology and other people, uh, sort of factors. So I was going to do my thesis on, on Giza, looking at the pyramids of Giza to see how they've been conserved, but someone else had already chosen that. So I chose the Valley of the Kings and I was lucky that um, I got in touch with Kent Weeks, um, who's a wonderful Egyptologist and has been working in Egypt uh, since the 60s on the Aswan High Dam campaign. And he asked me to, you know, get in touch with him and go and meet him in Cairo. And he offered me a job working at the Theban Mapping Project. Now, I was, you know, it was amazing, amazing opportunity and, and obviously jumped at it. And I moved out to Egypt and was there for almost six years on the project. Now, what they tried to do is you know everybody knows the name the valley of the kings but really there's not that much actually was known then about it in terms of the number of tombs the actual um oddly there wasn't a map of the entire valley so the theban mapping project's main rationale was to make sure that everything was documented and it sounds really dull side of archaeology, but actually until you know what you've got, how do you preserve it? How do you care for it? So it's really important. So Kent's whole life has been making sure that the whole Theban area was protected, but particularly the kings. So if we look at its significance, um, it was a royal burial place for almost 500 years. 
it's not just kings that are princes and other um, members of the royal family there there is a another site close by called the valley of the queens as well which wasn't always for queens either there were princes and, and others in there but it's essentially the place for obviously all the big royals that we know you know from the main uh, period of egyptian history um the new kingdom so we've got all the big names your ramses your Seti the first Egyptian Kamun, and all those sort of names that we remember in history so a very important place but also set within a very important place which is thebes which is the religious center of egypt um and really that area dominated egyptian history for almost 500 years so very very important area and obviously now is the focus of mass tourism or not certainly at the moment anyway but you know in the main normally it's the place people go to if you go to egypt you want to go to the pyramids and then you want to go down to Luxor, go to the valley of the kings everything so there's a lot of pressure on keeping that site um, open and available to tourists, but at the same time to protect it. Yeah, I, so I've been, and I noted. So what they do is there, there always is it three tombs open, or is that just how many we went in? There's always a certain number of tombs open, and they rotate them, don't they? Um, but let's yeah. talk about some of those mm-hmm. tombs and some of the the kings buried there um, because it's just fascinating. Let's start with my favourite, uh, Ramesses the Great, Ramesses the Second. So tell us a bit about him. Well, I mean, he's your sort of, you know, stereotypical, really, sort of um, hard man and big man. He wants to uh, be better than anyone else that's come before him. So everything he does is on a gigantic scale, not necessarily good quality work. Everything is bigger than everyone else. Um, So, you know, his statues, um, his temples, his everything that he does is about scale. Um, so you've got one of the tombs that the Thebian Mapping Project worked on, which is my favorite in the Valley of the Kings, is called KV-5. And that's for the sons of Ramses II. So he built this vast mausoleum, um, which is the biggest tomb ever discovered in Egypt. It's currently, I think, uh, something around the region of about 137 rooms um, on three different levels. And basically, it's almost like a multi-story car park. And sons were to be, you know, interned on various levels of this uh, of this vast tomb. But Kent Weeks has spent his life, um, or at least the last 30 years of his life, excavating um, the tomb. And so far, they haven't really found any human remains. So that's the interesting side of that thing. It's like, well, where are the sons? Um, are they actually at another level that hasn't been discovered? Um, but again, it comes down to, you know, sort of money and getting... Um, that sort of work is really expensive. It's almost like mining engineering. So I think that tomb holds out a lot of secrets um, about, you know, Ramses's life and his sons. But yeah, a hugely interesting character, a big presence sort of um, in popular culture. Um, and he really left his mark, which would make him happier. Let's talk about another king. <clears throat> Akhenaten. Um, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't he the father of Tutankhamun? Yes, uh, well, this that's kind of debated still, but most people believe so, yes. I mean, that whole family history of what's called the Amarna period is quite uh, complicated and um, also insanely studied. It's probably the most studied and talked about and written about period of Egyptian history. Um, 
starting with Amenhotep III, which was Akhenaten's father, the, the Sun King, as he was called. Um, Akhenaten himself was called Amenhotep IV, but then he changes his name to Akhenaten and actually changes the whole religion and setup of Egyptian worship in the country, even changes the capital city. Um, I like to, I have an analogy, I like to think of him more, a lot of people think he was pretty crazy, a revolutionary, the first monotheist, all these different uh, sort of titles they give him. Personally, I see him very much as a sort of Henry VIII character. He was trying to reaffirm the, the power and the authority of the pharaoh, which had been really handed over to the priesthood, uh, which is similar what Henry VIII was doing with the Vatican and with the Catholic Church. And I think what Bakhnaten was engineering was an economic revolution, actually, not a religious one. But the way to seize power and to take those temples over was to obviously have a so-called religious revolution. So I think he's fascinating. Obviously, uh, there's lots we don't know about him. The Egyptians decided, you know, they, one of the things the Egyptians did was fantastic. They could, if they didn't like you, if they decided that you weren't really a good pharaoh, um, they would write you out of history. And that's what they did with the Amarna period. They put everything in Tut's tomb, sealed it, and then went around the country and probably... The, even countries close to them, and he raised any reference to any of them, Tutankhamun, Akhenaten, so the Greeks, the Romans, they had no, if you'd mentioned that to them, and they loved Egypt, as you know, they were obsessed with visiting Egypt and, and, and all its kings and theology, they didn't know Akhenaten, they had never heard of Tutankhamun, it was only modern archaeology that rediscovered them or actually probably an old woman with a donkey that got stuck and all that yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> it usually yeah. is, isn't it? Um, Donkeys, goats, are very essential equipment for archaeologists. Yeah, and wasn't it, um, wasn't it some kid mucking around in the sand that found uh, Abu Simbel? Allegedly, I have heard that story. Yeah. It's very lovely. There are some wonderfully romantic stories about you know discoveries in, in Egypt and stuff. Often, sadly, most of them are to do with robberies. Yeah, and in fact, um, uh, what happens is that you know items come onto the market. Even now, people find what the hell? Where did that come from? That shouldn't be on sale, you know. Um, and it's that someone's found something and they're ex excavating themselves, looting, um, much as what happened in the Victorian era. And um, it still goes on, sadly. So you see, you know, it's a vast country in terms of, uh, you know, a linear country, very difficult to control. The pharaohs always had that problem too. And so when there's any kind of loss of central control, like after the revolution, um, it's very difficult to police what goes on. Um, I'd love you to just tell us um, a little bit more about Akhenaten because uh, it's probably my favourite. Um, just explain to people why he looks so androgynous in all of his statues and has a pot belly because it's all part of the propaganda you were talking about isn't it well the thing is there are, there's a thousand answers to that and it depends on every every Egyptologist almost has their own theory which is why there are literally probably about a thousand books about the amana period um and as i just you know gave you that theory of have I, my analogy is that he's a sort of political figure and i also he was backed by the army this is a very important thing that often isn't discussed, but I and Horonheb, which were um, his uh, prime minister and head of the army, were behind him. And they certainly encouraged him to make these changes because obviously 
it was a win-win situation for them because if it didn't work out, they would simply take over what they did. They became pharaohs. So literally the royal bloodline was stopped and the, and the army took over. If it worked out, it was also a win-win because they were behind him. They were supporting him. They encouraged him. And actually you see depictions of him traveling through Akhetaten, his new city that he built. And the army is with him the whole time. They're always there. Um, so it's kind of, you know, it's, it had to be forced through his changes. I don't think people were very keen on having them. But his look, the whole thing about his look is, you know, as I said, it's heavily debated. But if you're worshipping, um, you know, God through him, um, then basically he has to represent, um, you know, everything um, about all deities. You've no longer got all the different uh, deities. So he showed himself as male and female at the same time. And of course, that is so radical departure to if you look, you know, at, at previous pharaohs and pharaohs after him, they show themselves as a perfect specimen of manhood. You know, they've got a six pack, they um, are athletic, they're good looking. Um, they're certainly not anywhere female at all um, or anything having a pot belly, like you said. So I think, you know, there's this, when he made those statues, and apparently the first statues that he made of himself looking like that were placed in Karnak Temple, which is the, in Luxor, is the center of religious power. So it's, it's sort of the Vatican of Egypt. And it obviously continues after him. It was there before him as well. But he demands, or we presume, that he places his statues in there. Now, all these other statues of all the other pharaohs that we know and love all look the same, essentially. And there's his. You can imagine the shock on the priesthood and the people and, and the rest of it who could see it. So I think he's very much wanted to make a, a big statement um, about, the, about who he was and about the fact that everything now is different. What went before is gone. Um, and, you know, certainly a tyrant, I think. Um, but I think underneath it, from my point of view, is he was doing it to restore the power of of the elite of the of the of the pharaohs because the as I said the um, priesthood had become at the an equal level um, as the king and he they weren't going to accept that any longer. I want to know a little bit more about his tomb and where where he, was he buried? Is he in the Valley of the Kings? Um, well, this is a used debate as well because he had his own. Uh, they built tombs for them all um, in. Uh, Akhetaten in his own city but that city was um, uh, abandoned after I believe about 15-17 years so not a long time at all Um, so was his body moved to the Valley of the Kings some people think it was they found what they believe is his uh, coffin sarcophagus which is smashed to pieces um, and his name erased so there's a big debate about, you know, a lot of the um, uh, rulers of that period. Um, uh, also, you know, Nefertiti, you know, where, where are their bodies? Because we don't really know what they did with them. We know one of the theories with the Tutankhamun's, Tutankhamun's tomb, which I quite like, is the fact that most of the objects are from different people. They don't all belong to Tutankhamun. Um, they're, they're sort of, a, it's a family chest in a way. And it, I think in, in many ways, it's a one way of literally sort of cleansing themselves from the Amarna period. So everything to do with that family 
chucked in the ground and almost throw away the key. Um, and I think, you know, that sort of sums it up. They decided to forget them. They wanted us to forget them, which is amazing, really. Women pharaohs are just as important as the men. Um, I know she isn't buried here. I'm asking this, but actually Alina's written this. Um, so we know she isn't buried there, but Alina would, uh, Alina thinks that Cleopatra should have been and uh, briefly wants you to tell us why she isn't. Obviously, Cleopatra is a huge name um, in Egyptian history. Um, and um, a lot of people, you know, when they think of Egypt, that's what they think about. They think of Cleopatra, they think of Ramses, they think of Tutankhamun. Um, the reason she's not anything to do with the Valley of the Kings or Valley of the Queens, where she would be, is because that site was abandoned by that period. It wasn't used. Um, it was no longer the, uh, the burial places. Now, the thing with the Ptolemies, which is part of that dynasty, is they were based in Alexandria. So their capital city, that was all moved. They had a new capital city, um, and they were placed on the throne of Egypt, of course, by Alexander the Great. Um, but she was the end of that dynasty. So she's, you know, 350 years later. Lots of Egyptologists, lots of historians refer to her as a foreigner, a sort of uh, upsurper of the Egyptian crown. My, uh, when you look at Cleopatra and people think that, uh, you know, for, she's a foreigner in Egypt, but she had been on the throne for 350 years. Um, oh, sorry, her family, her dynasty had. If you look at the British royal family, essentially German royal family, um, they had a German name, even Saxe-Coburg, until World War One. And But yet we today, like, look at the crisis we're in now, and everyone's turning to the royals. No one thinks she's a foreigner on the, the throne of England. Cleopatra and her family were on the throne for 350 years. She spoke Egyptian. Um, she issued uh, edicts in um, uh, Egyptian. She restored almost every single temple that is left standing on the Nile now that we see. She was a, a good pharaoh, a good Egyptian. So I don't think people saw her as a foreigner at all. Um, I think it's very easy to categorize it because Egyptologists like to categorize Egypt into different segments, but ultimately it's Egyptian history. Um, so she's a fantastic character, obviously wonderfully um, sort of immersed in our modern popular culture as well. And we have the Greeks and the Romans and, of course, Shakespeare, et cetera, and, and to, to thank for that. And then, of course, modern Hollywood that loves her. You know, they can't stop making movies about her. Um, and long may that continue as well. And I think there's a lot to find out about her. Um, I don't think we'll ever find a burial, sadly. Um, there are people looking. Catalina Martinez, uh, uh, an Egyptologist in, in the north of um, Egypt, is looking. Um, she's been looking for several years. Um, it's more than likely that the, if the Romans did get her body, they would have just destroyed it. If they had obviously taken her alive, they would have taken her back to Rome. If her people buried her, then they would have done it somewhere, obviously, where she wasn't going to be identified. So I don't think there'd be a tag on her foot or anything. Um, but, yeah, I think she's probably sadly lost to time. But uh, there are, you know, the, her story is amazing. And um, I think it will constantly look back at it. And the power, you know, women in Egypt were powerful. There's a lot more study now into that, particularly, um, that they, women weren't just substitute kings. They weren't just there just because they couldn't be a pharaoh. Sometimes they, they did take the position because there wasn't a male to take the position. 
Um, but we also know that the mothers of kings and wives of kings had power through their roles as, um, as high priests. Um, so that's been a lot more, there's a lot more study on that now. And the, um, the sort of power they yielded through their, through that, that wall. Um, and Egyptians tend to look back in history sometimes favorably on the female pharaohs, but uh, we know with Hatshepsut, for instance, that they decided that she was persona non grata and they would remove her from history. But she's the one, this is my another, this is why I have to do a TV show about analogies, because I think <laughs> Hatshepsut is basically um, Elizabeth I. That's my analogy. I mean, she declares herself pharaoh, she declares herself actually male, and she's, she shows herself as a male pharaoh, not as a female queen. Um, she, so she's a king. She's saying that she, as she's strong enough, she is, you know, going to rule the country. She's not just a caretaker, uh, Pharaoh. She's going to rule in her own right. Um, so I think that, yeah, I need to do that TV show, I think. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So we mentioned previously, well, you mentioned previously about tomb robbing in the Valley of the Kings. I mean, what happened to the artifacts and the tombs themselves? Well, this is a big question about, you know, the fact that how much was actually put in the tombs. This is one of the one of the things. Um, there has been studies, um, you know, looking at whether or not the level of equipment, say, for instance, if you take Tutankhamun as a benchmark, if every tomb had that kind of uh, amount of material in it, um, I think one economist at one point worked out that there wouldn't be enough gold in the entire world to do that for every pharaoh. So the, a lot of people believe that, in fact, there was a sort of recycling process going on as well, that certain goods were put in the tombs, but at times of hardship, uh, times of uh, uh, you know, um, strife in, in the country, they, they, these things were emptied out and reused. Or maybe they were there for a certain period of time and then they were put away. The other thing is with the Egyptian uh, belief system is that if things are on the walls, if they're painted, if you have actual depictions of them, those can come alive as well. They can be, you know, real objects in the afterlife. So hence why where they put statues of, of servants and things, shabtis, they will come alive and they will look after the pharaoh in the afterlife. So... There's a point where if you have all these models of things and you have a model bakery and a model brewery and you have depictions of the objects you want to take with you, do you really need to take the real things? Probably not. 
So, but that doesn't mean there aren't valuable objects in the tombs. Obviously, even if you just look at the, the coffins and, and the actual bodies themselves, they're wrapped in precious um, objects and um, uh, rings and jewelry and this kind of thing and amulets. So it's always been tempting for people to obviously try and get into those tombs. And almost from the beginning of Egyptian history, there was tomb robbery. Um, so it's it's very, very rare to find tombs that are not disturbed. Um, so a lot of thought now gets the billings that it must have been people who knew where these tombs were. So actually people, workers um, or priesthood. Often the workers, I think, are blamed too much. I think it's probably a lot of it is priesthood we do know from various uh records that there were investigations into robberies particularly in the new kingdom and they found that at one point in thebes modern day luxor there was a whole tier of this of the city involved in this looting it was everyone from you know the mayor down to the local cops and stuff so it was a, a huge fiddle that was going on um so it's one of those things that sadly you know continued uh, throughout history, and then of course with you know what you'd call modern explorers and treasure hunters started going after 1799 and Napoleon's invasion of Egypt. Um, it started then on an industrial scale, and that's kind of you know a lot of people don't consider that looting and stuff, but it's it is looting. It's just done by state agencies rather than individuals and groups, and it also was done under the actual government of the time of Egypt. But of course, the government was French; it was not it was not Egyptian. And so, you know, and all, all these treasures that are in world museums, um, uh, lots of people say, well, well, that's a fantastic advertisement for Egypt. But there are many Egyptians who disagree with that and do want their cultural property returned. It's a very big hot potato at the moment in, in, in Egypt, um, particularly um, among the young, and they're engaged with it, which I think is fantastic. And there are particular objects, obviously, that Egypt wants back. Um, like the Rosetta Stone, um, and, uh, uh, you know, this. I think they've got a list of about six or nine um, objects they would like, like what they call key objects that tell the story of Egypt. There's the um, head, isn't there, of the um, female pharaoh that Berlin has, and they is, built yeah, this new museum. Yeah, they've built the new museum, and they wanted a loan, and Berlin would not loan them their own head for the new museum because they said they couldn't guarantee it would be safe, which is slightly outrageous. Well, uh, I think, I think the thing is, the new museum's not been complete yet either. Mm. I think Germany ultimately will probably do something, um, and I think countries, Egypt has a huge leverage with them in the fact that it can shut down the archaeological missions. Almost every country in the planet digs on it in Egypt. I mean, I think that, you know, it's, there are hundreds of countries operating in Egypt. Um, and so Egypt uses a combination of, you know, carrot and stick uh, with people. And I think there are certain uh, countries want to be seen as partners with Egypt and they will be more willing to hand over things. And a lot of stuff has come back. Um, yeah. And each, also, you've got situations like the Met Museum buying mummies and things on the market that are on the open market and then sending them to you. No, no, there might have been more to that story than meets the eye, but we'll get sued if you mention it. But, um, <laughs> you know, the thing is that a lot of countries want to be, and institutions want to be friendly with the administration in Egypt because they want to continue their work there. 
Um, and it's a, a unique situation, you know, that, that is also this sort of post-colonial or colonial ecology that's going on there, archaeology. It's heavily debated now among Egyptians about the presence of the number of foreigners working in Egypt. Lots more Egyptian digs take place now, led by Egyptians, all wholly staffed by Egyptians. And a lot of the discoveries, particularly obviously now, while the, you know, people can't travel, you'll see lots of announcements still of discoveries, but they're by Egyptian teams. And there's a certain nationalistic pride going on there, that the fact that they are doing it, they're managing their own heritage. And this new museum you mentioned is part of that, this grand Egyptian museum, is the first time for them to actually build the museum for their own culture. Because the big museum in downtown, in Tahrir, was built by the French. So this is, it is a nationalistic project. It is very important to a lot of people that they have, you know, they're doing a bit of a Ramses thing here. They're having the biggest museum in the entire world. Uh, you know, and it's a phenomenal project, a crazy project. And for years, it never looked like it would happen, but it is happening and it's almost close to completion, the construction side of things. So I think a lot of countries will want to be part of that. And I think there'll be uh, quite a um, busy period of things going back in the future. Um, I just wanted to ask you uh, about Tutankhamun's tomb and about this this new wall that people think there is something oh, behind. Yes, yeah. I'm really excited about that. Aren't they digitally trying to have a look behind the wall to see if there's a new chamber in there? Yeah, the, no, the thing is with Tutankhamun's tomb, the th actual, this theory came about is a project that we uh, worked on with Factamate, they're called, from Madrid. They did a, a, they've been trying to get replicas of the tombs made for some years. Part of that process is to scan the tombs, the digital scanning, and they've set up a center to digital scan all of the tombs, the Valley of the Kings, and trained the local people to do it, which is it's a fantastic initiative. Uh, but they were going to scan Seti the First, or they started to scan that tomb, but there was excavation work going on. So then they moved to Tutankhamun as a project. They scanned the whole tomb. And part of what they sort of believe in their ethos is that, that um, those scans must be put out to the world. So they built a website for it. And you can look at these scans. You can look at these high resolution images and study it. And Nicholas Reeves studied these images, an Egyptologist. And he said that he thought one of the wall panels, it was actually not a wall, but it was, it was fake. It was a door. Um, essentially, that there was something behind it. Um, and we move on a few years, and there's been various scans that's done. Um, initially, the first scan um, thought there was a chamber behind it. Another uh, second scan then re refuted that, and I believe there's been another scan that said there was, and I believe there's another one taking place. But the main problem is with that is, yes, there could be a space behind there, because often in the tombs, and you see this throughout the Valley of the Kings, if they um, hit another tomb, sometimes they change direction, so they'll close off an area. Sometimes they have rooms they don't use, so they close them off. So it doesn't mean that it's actually something in that room, but of course it could be. Um, you know, Nefertiti could be sitting there, uh, whatever, we just don't know. Um, but the problem is, how do you access that as well? So how do you access that room? You can't take, obviously, damage the, uh, the tomb. You can't take down the wall. Um, so 
they've got to be 100% sure before they start any work. And you can imagine, you know, the world outcry is if they start to drill and then something happens to their tomb, you know, um, which is why, you know, Factonato used their scans to make a replica of Tutankhamun's tomb. And that replica is at the entrance to the Valley of the Kings. Um, and the idea was that that Tutankhamun's tomb would then be closed to the visitors um, to preserve it. Um, but sadly, that hasn't happened. But obviously, at the moment, there are not many visitors. Nigel, you've mentioned previously about tourism in Egypt. I mean, we can trace this all the way back to the Hellenistic period, can't we? Uh, mm, oh, could yes. You, oh, could you tell us a little bit more about the tourism from that time and up until, well, now, really? Yeah, I mean, I mean, tourism, things with Egypt, it's, you know, the last wonder of the ancient world, that kind of thing. It's, it's you know, incredibly popular with the Romans, with the Greeks, uh, not necessarily as a you know tourist uh, destination as we see it, but they definitely wanted to visit there. They wanted to study under the Egyptian scholars. Um, there's a certain amount of internal tourism, you could say, that actually um, the pharaohs themselves may have um, taken uh, other visiting elites and kings and stuff around the country. I think I'm sure that, you know, can you imagine if you're, uh, you know, a king of Egypt, like a thousand years after the pyramids were built and you get a, a, a delegation from uh, Rome or something, of course, where are you going to take them, right? You're going to take them and show them the pyramids. This is what my ancestors built. So I, I think they've always been a, a sort of tourist attraction or an attraction. Um, but obviously, really, the main tourism that we think of started with the uh, Napoleon's invasion, 1799. You then get you know, the Grand Tours starting, you know, the Thomas Cook um, company started up, I think, May possibly they even started uh, their first tours or some of their first tours in Egypt. Uh, but of course, it's for the rich, right? It's for the elite. And then even as a child, when I mentioned at the beginning, you know, studying my um, Egypt books, I never thought that I would get to go there. It was one of those places, that, uh, destinations that was expensive. And... Um, in the 1970s, they had very low numbers of tourists, but actually they made quite a lot of money from tourism. And there was a shift uh, in the country's uh, sort of goals, can we say, and they wanted to go for big numbers. So they invested a lot in regional airports, they built up uh, hotels, and they allowed big chains in. And it suddenly became a place that, you know, ordinary folk could go to on your two-week holiday. And mass tourism got to before the revolution, something probably around 11 or 12 million a year, which it was almost getting to again until until the um, coronavirus came. And that has a huge impact um, on Egypt's cultural heritage. A lot of those visitors are not going for cultural heritage. A lot go to the Red Sea, which is fantastic. Um, huge amount of tourists, uh, business tourism goes to Cairo for congresses and conferences and this kind of thing. But that still leaves, we were getting about 7 million a year or something in the Valley of the Kings, um, which, you know, is incredible footfall. These places were not designed to be visited. Um, they have fragile. Um, there's a certain point where you've gone too far with numbers. Um, and that's got to be balanced. Things like the pyramid, uh, pyramids uh, site, I think they're easy, better to protect it. Uh, a lot of tourists actually 
in surveys that have been done are really surprised that you can go inside the Great Pyramid and stuff. So I think they could close those and not, there'll be no issue. I mean, they'd lose revenue because they charge more to go inside. But even the tourists going inside, because it's, you know, it's stone, there are no paintings, engravings, it's not really affected that badly by uh, by visitors. Uh, but the, the tombs in the Valley of the Kings, the tombs particularly of what they call the nobles, the elites in Luxor, they're very fragile and um, they're tiny as well. So, you know, you get groups of people in there and everyone's bashing the walls with their, with their bags and, there's t- of course, there's always the people who touch and that kind of thing. So it is a balancing act because, obviously, tourism is hugely important to Egypt um, in terms of the economy. So they want to attract people. They feel that they can attract more visitors by saying more and more tombs are open, um, yeah. and more and more discoveries. Um, so at the moment, everything's open. I mean, it, until the corona thing came around, numbers were, trying, were getting quite high. And it was worrying because some of the tombs that are very fragile really shouldn't be open. So we cannot finish this podcast without plugging past preservers. Um, <laughs> so please tell us about it and how it can benefit historians and archaeologists. Well, essentially, I mean, I started Past Preservers when I was in Egypt uh, with my co-founder, Kelly Kraus. Um, we, at that time, were just helping out filmmakers in the Valley of the Kings that were coming. We were doing research for them. We were helping them find experts, choose locations, um, just really anything to help them make better films. But when they left uh, Egypt, they would always ask us, you know, who do you know in Greece? Who do you know in Rome? Or we're filming next week. In England, we'd like some experts to talk about, you know, Roman uh, bath or something. And we, of course, we thought, oh, but there's a great opportunity there to be the people that are the go-between, shall we say, between academia and between the corporate and media worlds. Um, so when we left Egypt, came back and settled in the UK, we decided that we would set up this company that would try to do that. Um, so essentially what we are with this sort of, you know, we have this expert database, which is the core of kind of what we do. So people sign up on our website, um, all levels of expertise. Um, we have, you know, people who are just starting out or at university. And then obviously we have professors and people who have, have worked in the field all their life. We, it's not just archaeologists and Egyptologists. We have historians. Uh, we have a lot of scientists. We have explorers. Um, we a whole range of people for sort of non-fiction programming, essentially. And our clients in the media, production companies in the main, they will come to us when they have a project. Um, and they'll say, for instance, that at the moment we've got um, a project that's looking for geologists. So there's a... Um, um, it's going to be a show that involves mining, um, a gold mining. So they would like the geologists to work alongside their host to provide expertise. So we're looking for geologists. We also look for projects as well. So often our clients want um, new things to film, of course. They always want new ideas, new stories, etc. And particularly at the moment, while filming can't take place, people are looking to develop stories so then they can start to film them uh, in the, in hopefully later this year or, or next year. So we're always on the lookout for projects that people have got. Um, and we have a whole range of different clients. Uh, we're also working with a, um, 
actually an exercise company that makes exercise bikes and uh, rowing equipment and all this kind of thing for gyms. But they, as you probably know, they have videos built in, video screens built in the machines. So what they're doing is they're producing films uh, about particular locations, but led by an expert. So the expert walks oh, wow. through the site, you know, and talks you through it while you're on the exercise bike. So you can learn educational exercise. Um, so we want experts to come to us and say, look, I know the Valley of the Kings, I know Easter Island, I know this particular place better than anyone else, and I should be the one that takes people through it. So we we need people that really sort of live and breathe a particular location or site or um, historical uh, place, um, and that's going to start filming, hopefully. They're going to start as soon as the restrictions on, on travel are lifted. So our sort of remit is to basically, you know, be that uh, uh, mediator between the two worlds, but also for the academics who sign up to us, and we, we look after them as well. So we make sure that they always get paid, because we know that this is a big issue, and that's often a big sort of Twitter and a social media debate. Some production companies will obviously try to get people for free or for very little money, but we insist that all our experts are paid. Um, they are professionals. They're doing a job. Everyone else on the shoot is paid, so the expert should be paid. Um, so we negotiate that. We deal with the companies and take all that kind of painful side away so the expert can form on, uh, focus on the creative side and working with them to get the best show possible made. Um, I think I need to sign up to this because I've been saying that I'm going to do it, but I haven't done it. So ladies and gentlemen, follow my example, sign up, get on there, because all of this absolutely sounds just just great. And it's very easy. We have an online form that you can fill in. We do need a CV. We do need pictures. We do need a video. It is for TV, so we do need a video clip. Now, lots of people get very concerned about that, but we give lots of tips on the website about how to do it. And you can shoot it on your phone. It's fine. I mean, particularly now when everyone's stuck at home and everything, uh, you know, perfect opportunity to shoot those video um, and tell us about yourself. That's the best kind of video because people are, or tell us about a project that you're doing or something that you're passionate about. Uh, the media guys want to see that you can uh, explain your world to to the public. That's what they're interested in. So tell us about something that really gets you going and, and excites you. Um, and that will come through. Don't worry so much about the quality of the film and, and all that kind of thing and where you're at. Brilliant. That's amazing. Nigel, you have been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us, talking to us about the value of the Kings, tourism, and just in general, a few things that I'm assuming a lot of people have learned, like I have. And uh, hopefully we should get you be able to get you back on as soon as possible. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to Maddie Pelling about the Duchess of Portland and her lost museum. Don't worry, we had no idea either before she started, but it's absolutely brilliant. Don't forget that you can become a patron of History Hack by going to www.historyhack.podbean.com for as little as a dollar a month and help us keep going after the coronavirus crisis has passed. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged.
Good day to you. Good day to you both. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 